audio log 453, day five in the hot zone. My wife sniffled as she slept. I've boarded up the doors and the banging finally stopped at 1 p.m. My phone charger, I left it in the room. This may be my last communication. I fear it is contaminated. I'm down to my last can of pinto beans. Next, I shall eat the faux wood in the fireplace. I fear this may be the end for me, but at least the Wi-Fi still works. And audio log. I know, something like that. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All, all, all crispy. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And they thought that they could get rid of me. They were wrong. You were wrong. We did our best. I'm better than ever. Actually, we desperately needed you for the opening because, man, we could not we could not oh, do the opening or really anything. We just fell apart. <laughs> Let me tell you, there was some editing work to be done, and it's, you know... It's still a piece of work, but it's it's less of one than it was. Well, it's a piece of work as in a, a masterpiece, right? Uh, I'll let you think that because we're friends. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Great. That's true friendship uh, right there. Yeah. Letting me think what I want to believe. Indeed. Uh, right. Uh, so I, I, I guess, uh, given that I am apparently, as far as I can tell, the only source of structure that this podcast has. Uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? Yeah. I am drinking um, some nice, this is uh, Jameson whiskey, mm. but it's the Jameson whiskey, the Caskmates um, series, I guess is how I describe it. And mm. so what they did is they took this whiskey and distilled it. And then for the last portion of its aging, they aged it in a beer barrel mm. or a beer, a beer cask would be what it was uh, sure. in it. Yeah. So it's it's absolutely delicious, actually. I never had any. I've never had anything like this before. But Does sound excellent. Age in a beer cask. Wait, so beer. so, a, a, am I getting the correct impression that you went to like an alcohol store and just didn't take whatever was cheapest off the lowest shelf? No, actually, what happened? So, full disclosure is is due to the the catastrophe and all school and work being online. I'm actually at my my um my parents' house. Oh, uh, so, so so. I was, I see. So, like, no school, no work, no purpose. You had to go back to your parents' house. Man, that would start anybody drinking. I know. Yes. It, well, well, what happened was that I was, my, I, I was, I don't know, chatting with my parents, and I'm like, "Oh, I got to go record the podcast." And my dad's like, "Wait, you need something to say when they ask you what you're drinking." And so he poured <laughs> me this and handed it to me, um, which also means he listens to the podcast. It means he listens oh. to the podcast. <laughs> Shout out to Sam's dad. Like and subscribe. Uh, we'll have our Patreon up soon where you can contribute monthly to your to your son. Make sure to share with all your friends. Share with all your friends. That that can't possibly go wrong. Um, no, not at no. all. Uh, yeah. No, uh, no, no, I would never. I would, I would. You know me. You know I would go and get the cheapest thing on the shelf. But this is. <laughs> respect that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Steven, what are you drinking right now? Well, I will get to what I'm drinking in a moment, but I would like to note that while structure is nice and we really do appreciate you giving structure to this podcast and we desperately need it, we did get to go on a very long rant about C.S. Lewis without having any Catholic, uh, styling on, on the poor man. So 
I mean, you know, really, it was kind of a win in my book. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> you're just going to be like that, I see. Am. I mean, we still <laughs> critique Stephen. We still critiqued him very. Heavily. Oh yeah, we still critiqued him oh, no. plenty, but it was from a Protestant <laughs> perspective. Okay, so that makes so it okay. Thing, like, while I was editing all of this portion, you you guys accurately noted, like, oh man, I I know if Brevin were here, he would butt in in this portion, and I was just yelling at my monitors <laughs> um, the whole time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yes. <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, I am having uh, some white tea from uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, one of my friends ended up going to, I believe, Thailand to visit her son, brought back a goodly amount of tea and had way more than she needed. Found out I like tea. And uh, so I'm having some white tea from Thailand. All right. My family brand. Uh, white tea is my favorite type of tea. It, it really is. Uh, yeah. Or, mm-hmm. well, I will agree with you in that it is my favorite as well. Man, I mean, all that sounds pretty racist, but, you know, I'm not a judge. Okay, so let's move on to what I'm drinking right now. Uh, so a friend of the pod, uh, shout out to Zach, regular listener. Uh, he sent me an excellent video of a guy with a lovely Wisconsin accent making, he didn't call it a Wisconsin, but I'm just going to call it a, a Wisconsin, which is an, an old-fashioned, uh, you know, pretty involved, but with brandy instead. Uh, and I'm going to wholeheartedly... Uh, endorse this so you know we're we're talking sugar cubes we're talking maraschino cherries we're talking orange uh you got the yeah the angostura it's uh and then the brandy it's it's a good time um not gonna lie it is uh it is pretty goddamn tasty so shout out to zach for uh whatever i say tonight we'll we'll find out it's your fault one way or another thanks zach <laughs> uh all right uh, so, uh, boys, it's, it's been a while, you know, there's, there's the, the lamest apocalypse upon us. Um, although I think we do get to hold the, the, the blood of the future dead oh, right on Steven's forehead. Cause you know, absolutely. All of our listeners yeah. were like, well, you know, like I would have been concerned that like the CDC, you know, death toll out of China, blah, blah, blah. But then I heard, you know, I was listening to the problem with reading podcasts and Steven was like, it's no biggie. Go out and like door handles. People are freaking and, out way too much. And they did. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Stephen, you know, how do you feel about that? You know, I, I would just <laughs> like to say in my defense, if they were going to me for life advice in the first place, that's on them. That's not on me. Like, they, they should know better than that. So I feel like if it wasn't that, it would have been something else. So, you know, I shrugged my hands at that point. Or my shoulders. My shoulders and my hands. Neither here nor there. But, Stephen... I do believe that you wish to make amends with your article this week. I do wish to make amends. So, uh, <laughs> yes, having ranted some time ago about how the whole coronavirus wasn't that big of a deal and how everyone just needs to chill out, it did seem only appropriate to bring the topic up yet again so I could shoot myself in the foot one more time. Uh, in all seriousness, I'm not above admitting I was wrong, and boy, was I wrong on this, po- on this uh, particular topic. Although... I do still stand by my point that people have a weird obsession with apocalypse uh, a a la uh, Walker Percy in the uh, delight of hearing of wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and, you know, famine and all sorts of disasters. We humans really do uh, kind of enjoy contemplating our own demise. So I stand by that point for the record. However, in this case, it just turns out that, you know, they were right about the apocalypse happening. <laughs> you know. In any case, um, <laughs> the article I'm presenting is Keep the Churches Open by R.R. Reno, an editor of First Things. 
observing how many churches are closing in the wake of the uptick of COVID spread, uh, Reno maintains that these are not only unnecessary, but simply the wrong call, maintaining that loyalty to God and the need for the sacraments supersedes the need for quarantine, and that to suspend communion is indeed to uh, live by the world's com- uh, priorities and not by uh, God slash Christianity. Um, I'm sympathetic for this. Uh, my own church was closed recently. Um, the entire West Diocese uh, has closed services for the next two weeks. Um, and quite a few Orthodox are not amused by this at all. Um, during Lent, no less, and with the Pascha holiday not too far away. And the sadness of missing this sacred day and all the uh, celebration and worship associated with it is certainly not lost to me, though hopefully Pascha isn't going to be canceled. It still has some amount of time, but we'll we'll see. Uh nor is uh, the weight of missing out on this sacred mysteries lost to me, which uh, maybe it is somewhat given that I'm not a communicant and seem to be doing all right. But I also get that the theology behind it makes it far more burdensome than for an evangelical low church to spend communion more than they do already. Um, however, that sympathy only goes so far. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with uh, Bishop Alexis of Bethesda, quote, if one life if one parishioner is saved because of stricter measures, shouldn't we all have enough love to sacrifice even our own spiritual needs for that soul for two weeks? It is unthinkable that the servants of our Lord who healed all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people could be less prudent regarding the physical well-being and health of those in their charge than the civil authorities, end quote. This certainly isn't a trivial thing. Uh, liturgy is important. It's a massive part of what makes the church the church. Uh, same with communion. And with Lent and Pascha coming up, the fear of missing Holy Week and Pascha is very well-founded. However, we really must consider that this may be the time for the church to be humble and acknowledge that the best action is no action at this point, and that this will pass, and hopefully it will be noted that the church did what it needed to do, um, as opposed to people noting that it stayed open and therefore was an accomplice to more becoming sick. Uh, regardless of the above, this is the situation we're in, for better or for worse, uh, you know, good call or or bad call to, to close churches or keep them open. Uh, pestilence has come and gone before the church will endure as it always does. Uh, and ultimately we of the church should be praying whether in church or in our homes uh, for deliverance from this newest, uh, but quite frankly, not last uh, in the course of human history. Like so, all that to say, turns out COVID was a big deal. Who knew? Uh, and churches are uh, closing, which is in my opinion, probably the right call given how serious this has, uh, this has become. Yeah, I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. so my my thought in regards to, you know, Easter being canceled and all that is like, I mean, hey, Jesus had a good run of resurrecting, you know, every spring for the last like 2000 years. But, you know, everyone's streak has to end sometime. So, you know, you know, uh, you know, best of luck to him. And, you know, hopefully he'll be back next year. Absolutely. I'm sure, you know, take a year off, get back into training. He'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow yeah. that's uh how many extra years of purgatory is that for you and possibly me oh four or five but you know oh, okay I, four or five the, the the truly pure such as myself you know we only revel in the cleansing flame of uh of the the world above the underworld so uh how holy well when you get when you get past that can you pray for me who's still roasting in uh the flames of uh, my own sin uh can you pray for me to kind of speed that along i hear that helps Hey, you're not done yet. You can still convert to Catholicism. Don't worry. Good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I just had a, wow. so I, I was really hoping <laughs> that, that you would take like a really hard line um, against this article. Um, 
because I, already t- I, I never take hard lines, and I took the hard line the last time around, and that ended the up shooting me in the foot. never took a hard that. line on this podcast. Was when I was wrong. The line that, that COVID was <laughs> not a problem. Touche, <laughs> touche. Um, but but uh, so so I, I went through the sort of blast of emails that I received from my own parish here in, in Boston, and yeah, so uh, all masses are canceled, uh, dispensation offered to. Um, all congregants, uh, you know, encouraged to watch online, but obviously that's not a replacement thing. The one thing, though, that Reno does suggest in his article, which is that, you know, things like baptisms, uh, confirmations and such be attended by small numbers of people, you know, just like family and friends, weddings, uh, is still on, at least according to the latest information from my parish. So it, it appears that, I, I mean, Reno may have been preemptive in assuming what the measures taken would be who knows um everything kind of ages very quickly as Stephen knows in this current climate where everything is evolving or mutating as it were uh, so anyway that at least is still there and it is sort of an interesting question if the if the parishes around me and i'm sure around you guys too they'll care less um if the confirmation classes still go through this easter if they'll just hold small services for them and uh you know close family members um, to complete that entrance in, into the church. Because that, I think, if they do stop them from happening, I'm sure they'll do some kind of uh, dispensation makeup like a week later or two weeks later or whatever. But that, I think, would be more of a big deal than masses getting called off for two or three weeks. This is a relatively interesting question in the abstract, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we would say in the case of persecution that Christians should still hold services wherever possible. Um, I mean, and, and, and Christians have, and Christians have considered that important to the point of death in innumerable instances. So it is, I don't know, is, is, is the impersonal, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of, you know, God's will version of, uh, of this danger, does that make it categorically different from like the evil of man? Or, or is it just a mistake to even conflate those things? That that analogy has certainly come to mind a couple of times on you know you know we us being asked by authorities hey can you close services because you know disease is rampant and these services are going to help that disease spread the analogy between that and authorities saying hey we want you to stop so stop uh, there is a, a a loose similarity although I think in this case it is genuinely not the authorities believe it is for the good of society but. Genuinely, this is for the good of society, and it's also only temporary. I think if authorities were saying, hey, so uh, we've decided that disease spreads a lot, and you guys aren't making anything better, so we're just going to tell you to stop. Like That strikes me as one entirely kind of separate ca- category of this. For, for now, it's, hey, there's a really bad plague going around. We need, to, we need to lock this down. And so I think those are two just almost ontologically different categories. I agree with that. The interesting part of this whole phenomenon for me has been seeing the different reactions of churches to the virus. I mean, at this point in Seattle, every church is shut down. I don't know of a church still operating, hmm. but it was interesting how they shut down over time. Is there were there were kind of two main waves of it. About three or three or even four weeks ago, most of the non-denominational churches went online which was really interesting to me because my church was still practicing just fine. I mean, we were still, we were still taking the full, the full Eucharist and doing the full service. Um, And our priest was saying, 
no, we are not, we're not going to stop until the bishop tells me that we have to stop or I'm sick myself. I, I don't know. I, I guess we, we did eventually end. This last Sunday was our last service. And then a couple of days later, we got an email saying that the bishop has called all um, Anglican churches in the area to stop, stop services. But it had a very different tone than the well, you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna go online. Service will be online. It's totally, you know, the same thing. Just get some friends together and watch it, and you're all good. I guess. Do you guys think that there's some theological difference between those two stances? I think it's not so much a difference in theology as um, praxis. So this, and this is one thing uh, the priest at St. Catherine's brought up uh, was that with Protestant churches, the primary aim is catechetical. Um, is that pronouncing it right? Well, it, the primary aim is uh, pedagogical. Maybe it's to to teach, um, to instruct, to give, whether it's sets of facts or if it's uh, sets of advice on how to live well and whatnot, which is not a bad thing. I certainly don't want to knock that. I think he kind of wanted to knock on that, but I, I don't <laughs> find that all that much of an issue. And so in that case, it's, it's actually not that big of a deal if you're watching online versus in person. Um, about the only thing you're losing out on is the sense of community and what have you, which um, I don't think is a, a trivial thing to lose out on. Uh, but with Catholicy, Anglican, uh, Episcopalian, and in general high church, that's not the real tenor of it. Certainly the sermon is important, but uh, you know the climax of the services is, as we all know, communion. Um, and that you just need to be in person for that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I mean, our priest is very sad about it. He's like, we're going to be doing online streaming and we're going to figure something out for that. So, you know, do do log in and watch it. But I understand that it is very, very different and not the same and cannot be compared. I, I also wonder if there there is something with higher church that I've noticed more and more is that worship really is communal. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm really doing justice to low church just because it's been quite a, quite a bit of time since I regularly attended a low church. Um, cause I do remember some amount of like a real feeling of, of belonging and community, for example, with SAU when I, whenever I went to chapel or what have you, but I think in that case, I would also say I literally lived with all those people. So that may itself be, but it, it seems that there is an emphasis in a lot of high church, uh, high church stuff on, we do this together. Like this is, this mm-hmm. is when we come together to worship. Uh, whereas a, a lot of low church seems to almost have a little bit more of a disconnect, almost a, a new cler- clericalism, as it were, where you you watch worship happening, which I think, to be fair, it's also very easy to fall into that with any worship service, whether it's Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Anglican, Episcopalian, or low church. All right. Yeah, that's a... Uh, no, I, I, I think that's a very measured take on that. Uh, let me make the non-measured take. But first, uh, I actually have a friend of mine who was talking about, you know, in terms of different reactions to this whole event that we're all experiencing. And it's it's the big Bethel Church, California, the big oh, no. mega church, so I'm told. Um, and they have one of the things, and they're known for sort of all the terrible songs that get stuck in your head, which I'm going to do to you, you know, like, uh, it's who you are. Stop. It's who you are. No, please stop. It's who you are. It's who you are. And then that, but just for like five minutes. Um, Mm-hmm. So God's not dead, but Christian art sure is. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it's true. But anyway, one thing that they have at their churches, you know, in their mega cathedral, whatever, is uh, healing rooms, which are now currently closed due to COVID nineteen. 
Uh, <laughs> Can we get a, a, like a, a, a Palpatine uh, saying ironic uh, in that in that place? Ironic, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, it's 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 pretty bad. Uh, but no, uh, the, so this is a, a point that I sort of came to um, while attending a wedding this past weekend, where it was an excellent wedding. Uh, good friends, good times and all that. The sermon was given actually by a preacher from Seattle who flew in just for the event. And the sermon, you know, talked about marriage is whatever, it's, it's sacrifice, it's a gift, it's great. Uh, you know, you're here for each other, you're, you know, God. Uh... Anyway, but but the message swiftly took a turn uh, sort of at, at, at the midpoint when it was getting into the more theological side of things. And what it turned to was Jesus's sacrifice on the cross and to, you know, that is the ultimate sacrifice you're sacrificing for each other. And the whole thing, you know, the whole message about marriage became, you know, sort of shown through a, a prism once again of, you know, Christ's salvation on the cross and the focus of being saved. And it, it struck me. And then further in conversation that, so Stephen, you, you were talking about high church and how people come together to do faith. They come together to do practice, to do worship. And there's a liturgy, work of the people that is, you know, I mean, relatively active, let's say, compared to low church. I mean, that's sort of the distinctive, one of the distinctive uh, features. And it struck me that Protestantism in, in that moment sort of crystallized, has the issue that it is so fragmented among different groups and different peoples that they, they lack commonalities and so the one thing that they can always come back to is the moment of salvation and like, oh, the moment that you were saved. That's what testimonies are, is they're, they're the one touch point of universal language that you can be sure that all you know, people who say that they're Christians or say that they're evangelicals or whatever will agree with you and can nod their heads like, oh, yeah, I know that moment. That's the one universal that they still have because they don't have any agreement about practice or about theology or about anything you know, much more complex than that. And, and, and even this manifests in sort of amusing ways. My wife is currently applying for, to work at Christian schools um, for our next location in the coming year or so. And uh, one evangelical non-Christian school that she applied to, one of the big questions in the application was, describe your moment of salvation, including the, the date as best you can remember, and then give your testimony. And it was like, wow, that is really like the only point that you can like reach out to talk to someone about when you enter into such a fragmented side of things. And again, uh, whatever, whatever, ecumenism and whatever, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's my not kind take on that. I mean, this is definitely getting into the weeds a bit, uh, which I'd also, just because I'm salty over your comments, I'd just like to say, uh, yeah, yeah, Mr. Structure, getting us into the weeds of this. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I was listening to uh, a YouTube clip, actually, of uh, Metropolitan Calistus Ware, who Sam and I talked about uh, last session, um, speaking at SPU. And, uh, oh, nice. Um, yeah, he's, he's yeah. great. And him, him saying that he was confronted with the question, uh, are you saved? And um, he, he said, like, well, I certainly didn't want to say I was saved and kind of be prideful in that. And that kind of like, oh, everything, everything that's been needed to be done has been done and I'm good. But also, uh, the person who asked me would be understandably very confused that I was wearing a cassock and saying I, I wasn't saved. 
Um, and so he, his response was, I am being saved. And I think that that is a much more robust understanding, which granted, I, I would like to emphasize, I don't think that that is that like that that is a unique thing to high church but i think that is a much more prevalent theme with high church is this is the act of our salvation this is our working our salvation out whereas with a lot of low church evangelical it really is a what was your moment of salvation i remember that being continually discussed uh throughout like youth groups and and sunday schools and whatnot that you know when were you saved and and further that you're forced to revisit it every church camp when you get overwhelmed by oh the guitar and you know it the the, the social pressure down they're like and listen if you're out there and you feel the spirit i just want you to know that god loves you he loves you and, well, he, and he wants you to be his own and I, i'm gonna put some music over my voice so that it works better but uh it's a constant state of panic and anxiety he's like oh no was that the real moment if i felt it twice which one was the actual one as opposed to like actually this is a process you know we're here uh and there's you know you, you have to keep working at it as opposed to like was that moment the real one is that the 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 actual eternal glimpse or did i miss it and i actually have to keep looking for it anyway that's all so Protestants just need yeah. to get woke on on mcintyre's virtue ethics uh sorry sam we've cut you off a oh, few times so. i mean well two things is first of all on on that comment Brevin is, is, I used to play on church camp bands, and we had a saying, the Holy Spirit doesn't move until you hit 110 decibels. <laughs> uh, the rot is deep. But the, uh, the second thing is, I think that this divide that you guys are identifying between salvation, I mean, the fundamental question of Christianity, and the question of whether one is saved or being saved, or whether you can even ask that question, I think is what you know, Rusty Reno is, is delving into in this article, is he's looking at individuals who, for the most part, uh, hold the position that you are saved, you have a certain moment of salvation, and therefore closing out, um, therefore closing service and moving online isn't of much consequence. It's inconvenient, but it doesn't, it doesn't have any kind of eternal consequences because your salvation has already been worked out, versus he's looking at it from that perspective of, you know, where's perspective, or I mean, the general high church perspective, which is it's a constant thing being worked out. And so for him, it's unthinkable to stop working that out. So maybe that's more of the theological divide that I was talking about earlier, is it's between different views of salvation, evenly, even playing out in our email inboxes today, due to the coronavirus. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a, it's a relevant point. I think that's, that's actually quite well said. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. the different so, modes of salvation certainly do cause a a different reaction to having to shut down between this is truly a tragedy and this is something that is certainly inconvenient and we can't wait for it to be over, but ultimately isn't going to cause us much disruption for better or for worse. And mm -hmm. caveat, ca caveat, not all Protestants have a shallow view of salvation. Caveat, caveat, mm -hmm. my theology department was awesome, Hello. et cetera. Yeah. Also Anglican over here, but yes. Also uh, Protestant over here too. Mm -hmm. True, yeah. But um, but no, it. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I guess that is the. Oh, I was just saying that the acknowledgement of it being a tragedy does not equal saying it's not a big deal and should not and you shouldn't close down. Certainly, certainly. Mm -hmm. Or going on a podcast and saying that it's no big deal. Stop freaking out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah, I kind of figured.
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're never going to live that one down. <laughs> nope, I'm not. I'm never taking a hard stance again. This has confirmed my position as a fence sitter. It's safe on the fence. There are many other people who won't live that down either. What a shame. Oh. oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, while we're on the topic of sort of like salvation and like different views of salvation, I mean, I, I, I think one thing that we could all agree on if we're, you know, prone to make vaguely vapid, you know, uh, unfalsifiable statements is that everyone worships something. And Sam, I think that's the topic of your article today. It is. Yeah. Um, my article is uh, The Temple and the Shopping Mall. And this is actually an excerpt from uh, James K. Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom, which I own the book. And I have it, I actually have not read it yet, but it, this article was published by Doug Ponder, and he basically gives an excerpt of, of uh, James Smith's book and then gives a little commentary on it at the end. And this is a pretty dramatic par- uh, read, dramatic par- portion of Smith's book. Basically, his, his statement that he's trying to make is that shopping malls are the religious sites of the, metropolitan, of the modern metropolitan area in America. And he makes this point through a rather satirical and ironic take on the experience of going to a shopping mall. And so he describes this experience in exclusively religious terms. And it's, it's, it's quite entertaining. He talks about how you approach the, the, the temple, the, the place, and acknowledge its outward popularity as you witness pilgrims flooding into to, through the doors. Um, it's surrounded by a moat completely surrounded by this parking lot that is impenetrable to pedestrians. So you must use your your vehicle to get inside and then leave it at the door. Um, you go through a grandiose entrance complete with columns and high high ceilings that draw your eyes upwards and forwards into the worship to happen. He talks about how there's an aid immediately with the map and how this guides new newcomers through the experience and to their locations of worship. Um, he notes how everything is inviting for the worshipers, how all is inwardly focused. And so therefore you experience a sense of transcendence as you cannot see anything except for your objects of worship, meaning clothing and other items that you wish to purchase inside. He also observes that there's a, liter- there's a, there's a liturgical calendar to these structures. As everything, the decorations change throughout the seasons, and this is especially evident during holidays, such as Christmas, um, where the entire structure is adorned with decoration and ornaments and um, and new practices in the form of sales. Um, the architecture is strikingly like a cathedral. It's tall, it's, um, it focuses you inwards, but it's also so large that it can accommodate any need that you have, um, and it can accommodate many different uh, services taking place even at the same time uh, through forms of uh, through stores, which to him seem to be just like side chapels in a cathedral. He, even even looking inside the stores, you see icons or mannequins displaying what it looks like to live the good life, which is to be beautiful. So all of this is pointing towards an ideal that people are are to portray. Um, people are invited into those in individual chapels for individual experiences that are multi-sensory. You have visual, you have audio, 
you're even feeling the garments, you, you smell them. And it's all um, in the search of some object to take home for, um, for you to find your own meaning. Once you find that object, you perform a short ritual and leave with a benediction. Now, obviously, this article is incredibly melodramatic, I think, but, but also quite entertaining and points out some, of, some very true religious, un, very true um, undertones in the shopping experience and how it maps onto what it means to orient one's life in a certain way. And so Ponder's assessment of this contains three main points. The first is that everyone worships. He basically says that everybody has to desire something most. They're devoted to that thing, and you make sacrifices for that thing. And that involves a certain pattern. And so in this consumer experience, you are actually replicating that pattern of what it means to worship. The second is that worship shapes your being, meaning that you do, you do this thing, everyone does this thing, but that thing also shapes who they are and both their appearance, but also their internal mindsets. The, the end, he ends the, upon the end of his assessment with um, a very Christian argument where he basically just says that God is the only thing that is not self-destroying, that these practices inside of the shopping mall destroy the self because they, they, they force you to change your, to adapt yourself in a certain way to fit these outside models versus his argument that worshiping Christ is opposite of this good life, but it is restful and light for the believer. So I think this article is interesting. I think James K. Smith's assessment is definitely, I mean, if nothing else, provoking and I think pretty true. My big critique of it is that I'm not sure how well this maps, this maps onto our modern culture. It feels like it may accidentally exist in 20 years the past when shopping malls were actually prevalent. Um, today, I think we're moving so much online that I'm struggling to see exactly how it maps onto an entirely virtual shopping experience. But beyond that, I think it's a fun read. It's interesting. Um, and I've definitely had that experience in shopping malls where you look around and it feels quite, quite religious. I was somewhat, uh, somewhat troubled by the idea that you brought up uh, in that, yes, kind of while, while reading it, I did kind of think, well, this is a little bit out of date. And if anything, America, like malls are, malls are kind of dying left and right. And, you know, like personally, malls kind of stress me out or what have you. But I think I have a headcanon that may fix all of this. Amazon and in general, the online uh, shopping distribution is the Protestant Reformation of the mall liturgy. Um, it is the abstractification, the intellectualization. What it doesn't matter. The liturgy doesn't matter. What matters is the intellectual ascent, and that is exactly what Amazon is to mall liturgy. You don't. It's not an experience anymore. You go onto Amazon without really much, much uh, rigmarole, other than the intellectual um, exercise of trying to find the most price efficient thing, the 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 most uh, bang for your buck, as it were. That, like that is that is the only ceremony. What is your moment of salvation? Is it one day delivery or is it an ongoing search? <laughs> I still remember the day that I signed up for Amazon Prime. No, no, that's and and uh, the the community aspect is gone. The the uh, you know all going to one place. Any unifying aspect is gone. Uh, it's, it's like you know because uh, multiple different sellers competing each other for the most effective and low price. 
My God. Oof. Incredible. Are we saying that Jeff Bezos and John Calvin are basically the same person? I, I think we that's are. what we said. This is this is a this is a master's thesis that writes itself. Um, Absolutely. In, in 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 the reading group that I have, whenever we have very controversial, actually, it's mostly me now that I think about it. When I have <laughs> controversial slash like obviously bad but amusing opinions about um, the books that we're reading, I always say that this is like a B minus master's paper. So this is a B minus master's paper. I think, yeah, the more I think about it, this actually does make a lot of sense. So Amazon maps to the Protestant Reformation in that the malls map to Catholicism in that you can buy your salvation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that too. Go to Wait, hell. But you're still, you're still buying things <laughs> on, on Amazon. I know. I just wanted to bring up indulgences. <laughs> oh, good. Very good. We spend enough time knocking on Protestantism, which I still consider myself a part of. I, I had to even it out a little bit. Yeah, so I, I guess it does. It does still map onto our modern time sufficiently, I think. But it just it, there were certain things that he said that felt a little bit dated. Well, I also look back to your article from last week from First Things, which was talking about kind of the new, the the new very the the humanism, but the transcendent humanism that is more is is becoming far more prevalent in our culture. And so I felt like I feel like malls most people acknowledge are kind of part of a gross consumerism is that at least in our generation and maybe this is just a selected the sample selection error because of the people i i know but it seems like people are far less or are far are far less willing to i guess put their meaning in stuff like clothing do you guys get that sense I th- I think I'd be inclined to agree with you that like the the secular monk is a good example or a good counterexample of this, but also mm-hmm. the new waves of um, minimalism that have come out, uh, new waves of kind of stoicism that are starting yeah. to become more and more popular. Because I, I think that just speaks to the objective truth that consumerism is not a good solution. Um, consumerism is not a good religion. That it does leave you feeling hollow and empty. Uh, I think. Um, you said uh, James Smith was the first one, but um, the guy who wrote this article, uh, Ponder, um, I think both of them are mm-hmm. very well said in that. Um, so I think it, so maybe, I think that's just more a testament to yeah. the objective truth of what they're saying. So maybe that's Smith's argument is that he's maybe he's attacking the content of consumerism because he's saying, look, if the structure was all that matters, then it should work. Considering the structure if you put a perfect religious structure onto this content, or you put the content into a perfect religious structure, it still doesn't work. What does that say? That says that the content is incredibly flawed. A- a- absolutely. I mean, especially it, it, his his idea of you become what you worship. Um, man, like that's kind of your your end goal is things is is goods. Um, that it, it, it just the end goal is or the end game is not going to be very pleasant. Um, I, I also particularly loved his, uh, as Brevin said when opening up, that uh, that everyone worships something. Uh, I mean, you know, my man David Foster Wallace right there, just uh, just laying it in. See, see, I was actually being critical of that statement when I opened I'm not sure why. Vapid and, and unfalsifiable, uh, sort of in the sense that uh, it's, it's sort of like, let me uh, back up. So I actually wanted to come in and be fairly critical of this article. Mostly because it's derivative of something else and also because of the three points, which I don't think add a whole lot. Um, so, yeah, you know what? Let's just go uh, pompous here for a second. 
Are y'all familiar with the sociological article called Body Ritual Among the Nasarima? No. Sounds vaguely familiar, but go on. All right, let me just read a passage from it then. So this is a sociologist explaining the habits of a North American tribe that uh, he has discovered. He's just describing the, you know, anthropological practices of of this group. (laughs) The daily body ritual performed by everyone includes a mouth rite. Despite the fact that these people are so punctilious about care of the mouth, this rite involves a practice which strikes the uninitiated stranger as revolting. It was reported to me that the ritual consists of inserting a small bundle of hog hairs into the mouth, along with certain magical powders, and then moving the bundle in a highly formalized series of gestures. In addition to the private mouth rite, the people seek out a holy mouth man once or twice a year. These practitioners have an impressive set of paraphernalia consisting of a of a variety of augers, awls, probes, and prods. The use of these objects in the exorcism of the evils of the mouth involves almost unbelievable ritual torture of the client. The holy mouth man opens the client's mouth and, using the above-mentioned tools, enlarges any holes which decay may have created in the teeth. Magical materials are put into these holes. If there are no naturally occurring holes in the teeth, large sections of one or more teeth are gouged out so that the supernatural substance can be applied. In the client's view, the purpose of these ministrations is to arrest decay and to draw friends. The extremely sacred and traditional character of the rite is evident in the fact that the natives return to the holy mouth man year after year, despite the fact that their teeth continue to decay, uh, end quote. And of course, he's talking about brushing your teeth and going to the dentist. Uh, yeah, let's pause there. Uh, so reactions to that. Have you read into that before? Uh, yes, I've, I've read it before. I think I read it. Yeah, I've heard that before. And like I that. It's a classic, like, undergrad text. Like, oh my god, the Nasarima? It's just American backwards. What? Mind blown. Oh I my god. So educated. I guess everyone is superstitious, and all cultures are exactly the same. What? No, uh, but the... the uh, values are a joke. I can just become my own god. And then David Foster Wallace will slap me upside the head with a, some, some good wisdom. You barbarian. Yes, exactly. Uh, but that to say, one, this is obviously der- derivative of this, which is not necessarily a bad thing, except for it's weird. The way that, that it's written weirdly strikes a chord against something else that I have been, that I found myself sort of railing against mostly as my wife completes a master's of English degree and, you know, has various people in her program that I come across who very much like various forms of uh, literary theory, uh, particularly when that theory involves political observations, which is just that a lot of the theory that I encounter in that space, uh, which I hate myself for saying, but there's a vocabulary of conspiracy around all of it, you know, Mm -hmm. to say there is, oh, so, you know, places like motels and bedrooms where things that society doesn't want to normalize or have in the open, those are heterotopias where the secret is hidden and then vanishes later on because it can't be revealed to the to the main populations like and you know there's like the non-conspiratorial version of that which you know if people were just you know doing the deed in the middle of the street that would be pretty gross and i don't think most people want to see that so we so we have motels and bedrooms and this is not like a crazy thing to observe and and so much of the discourse in that sphere revolves around this sort of you know secret language that you know, is two or three layers deep where you describe the very normal things like people having opinions as, or groups of people having opinions for that matter. 
as this, you know, vast conspiracy or, you know, this is the, the, the zeitgeist or the discourse. And, and that's not to say that, you know, we have to restrict our analysis to things that can be expressed in plain words, but there certainly is an obfuscation and sort of deliberate design to making things more complicated than they need to be that allows you to control how the how a, a discussion follows. Normally, I'm all down for articles like this, but for some reason, the everyone worships something and then that following through to point three, which is basically contentless. It's just a couple Bible verses where it just says, the only thing you can worship that won't delude you or disappoint you or cause you to self-destruct is God. And then it just quotes three, three Bible verses in a row with no like reasoning to it. Oh yeah, I did. I was actually not a fan of Ponder's assessment. I, I mean, I like James K. Smith. He's fine, and that's no, yeah. what I was here for. The James K. Smith was 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 interesting enough, but that as as a part of this sort of hidden secret language, where you know you could sort of see people reading like, oh, everyone worships something. It's like, well, okay, I I think it's conceivable that some people don't. I I think some people are so fractured and disconnected that they don't have a centered consciousness that they are devoted to something and make sacrifices for something maybe it's a lot of things maybe it, it's so many things that it's it's functionally useless to to say that they worship something maybe the modern maybe the modern system divides the person until they're not a person at all quote Max. yeah no that's that's a very fair observation so so all that to say is while this article would normally strike me as interesting i sort of felt the the urge to take a negative view of it I think I, I concur with you on the, the conclusion. The conclusion was a little bit uh, cornball for, for my taste. I think we're all on the same page with that. Um, I disagree with you on the everyone worships thing because, I mean, at at the most you have proven everyone worships or is worse off for not doing so. I, I don't think you, you kind of made the case for um, everyone worships or people don't and they're perfectly fine without it. Um, but that's me just leaping to the defense of, uh, you know, this is water, which is a brilliant speech. And listener, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. So I I, I certainly understand your disagreement with like, there's only so much mapping we can do from one conceptual framework to another. Like there's, there's only so much suspensive disbelief we can do when saying, hey, we see this situation. We're going to map this onto a completely different situation and see and use that as proof for it's pretty much the same thing, except in a different context or something like that. And I. I sympathize with that in that certainly, yes, the mall is not an actual place of worship. Um, and I think that the analogy does get stretched pretty hard, but that doesn't mean that the truth of what he's saying doesn't, uh, that, 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 that truth doesn't follow. And I think there is something about the franticness of, uh, of consumerism that does take on almost a, uh, maybe not religious, but at least quasi religious air about it. Um, I don't think you have the zeal, of a lot of kind of the new religions uh, see Sam's ever present uh, cults of the, uh, the left and right. Um, I don't think we see the zeal of consumerism quite like that. Although, I mean, take a look at what's happening with the, the shutdowns and see how people are going batty trying to, or in overwhelming Amazon with various, uh, various purchases. I mean, it's more, it's more going back to your comment, Brevin. Um, maybe you'll edit this, but I guess in, in, I, I totally see that in the literary genres and in political analysis is that often people use kind of an ironic language in order to get out a point. And like, especially in defense of, um, I don't know, I see it, I see it more on like socialist arguments is that people use more of an ironic take on the situation and in order to justify a certain policy, 
when really the ironic take dismisses so much of the the complicated nature of the situation. And so I think that this you can you can cherry pick the different parts and map them onto certain parts of a religious practice and call it religious, but it's not actually an honest assessment of the situation. It's assessing it in terms of metaphor and for the purpose of reaching a metaphor. And so it's almost like designing a false a faulty research question where you where you decide your conclusion and then pick all of the attributes that you're going to pick up on your subject in order to reach that conclusion, which is faulty. So I think while the article is entertaining, its method isn't really useful in discerning whether our modern shopping malls are religions. You can take it uh, seriously, but not literally. Yes, exactly. And I think that I think that he makes a very good. I think that he's making a larger argument here, which is saying that the, con- the consumerism is bad and it's destructive to the human soul. That's yeah, a good no. argument to make. Yeah, no, but he's making uh, it in such a way that the methodology can't be replicable. <laughs> uh, methodology, sad. I mean, certainly, certainly, <laughs> I don't think you could argue for the mall being a place of worship or what have you. Um, maybe having the simulacra or having a, it is a, a vapid religion and empty that has is so dysfunctional that can it cannot be called a religion. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately Sam's correct in that. Like, yeah, the, the methodology would probably be questionable at best because yes, you have kind of come to your conclusion before establishing your premises and in your hypothesis and whatnot. No, it's, it's, it's nice to see that, uh, that Sam's correct, but apparently whatever Brevin, but you know, that's fine. Um, I know what article is coming up, so I have to get my digs <laughs> in while I can. <laughs> Touche. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, really like, you know, it's, it, it's entertaining description and, you know, makes you do a double take on, how much time we would be spending at the mall in 2010 or whenever that was written. And I was just being salty, really, because, you know, we don't have enough fighting on this. You know, that's sort of my goal is to just interject both structure and, you know, rhetorical violence. Uh, but speaking of being salty, water is salty. And you know who said this is water? David Foster Wallace, the infinite jerk. That's my article this week from the New Republic. And what this is, is a review of two Decent books, one nonfiction, one fiction. The fiction one written from the, from a woman who I believe dated Philip Roth, allegedly. I'm going to say that just for legal reasons. Uh, this is all a joke. And then the other one, a nonfiction m- memoir called uh, In the Land of Men by Adrian Miller. And this article is a review of said book. And Adrian Miller was the editor of, uh, or one of the editors of Esquire, among other magazines, who had a several years long affair with David Foster Wallace. And what this article more or less runs down, one in fiction version, one in uh, nonfiction autobiographical version, is these women's encounter with intense men of letters, perhaps sort of, as the article puts it, literary figures who are as famous as it is possible to be for a contemporary figure and their encounters, you know, uh, interchanged um, with their affairs with these people. And what it what they reveal as a larger theme is just sort of this culture of uh, sexism and do-diters is, is a term that's thrown around. And, you know, just sort of constant put down of, of women in these environments and them struggling through this environment as they seek you know their own careers and their own ambitions and the various uh, the things that come alongside that and the reason that i chose this article uh this week is because i've been reading a decent bit of david foster wallace 
recently. Um, I finished two anthologies of his. One was excellent. One was terrible. I think the excellent one may have just contained all the good stuff that he ever wrote. And then they were like, oh, damn it, that one sold well. So we have to do one. And they just picked whatever they had, which was not fantastic. This article, this and another article talking about the same two books, actually, did some interesting challenging for me because I had definitely begun to grow whatever affection one can have a nonfiction writer in that you you feel like they are revealing to you their thoughts and their minds and um, you know as much of a person as one can reveal to an, another person through writing and I was increasingly impressed and sympathetic with David Foster Wallace's struggles and his and his you know crusade against irony his search for meaning against you know his against a psyche that relentlessly pushed him down and made it difficult to progress or to take things seriously when he knew that was the only way to push forward. And all that was relatable in some uh, fashion, but, you know, mostly admirable and and interesting. Yeah, his style of writing, you know, even when he's writing about, you know, this horrible, disgusting, slimy adult film industry, he, he, he pulls out moments of humanity that with a delicateness that is really amazing to read and that just gives you real insight into people, albeit I, I, I'm coming to David Foster Wallace late as he died, I believe, in 2008 or 2009. Yeah, 2008. Two, 2008, yeah. And I'm just sort of now discovering him. So there's, you know, a, a half generation of people who have gone before me as fans of his and given me now, whatever name I'm going to have, um, apparently. This article, I think, challenged a lot of the positive vibes that I had for him, sort of just detailing an, uh, I'll say, interesting at best, uh, you know, borderline, well, not borderline, but downright creepy and um, manipulative at worst. Of course, he can't speak for himself, but, you know, there's not necessarily a huge reason to doubt the person who's articulating the events that happens to her. So all, all that to say is just, it was a different side to David Foster Wallace that I had seen in his writing and the accolades I had received of him from various friends, no fault to them, of course. I mean, it, it obviously brings up questions of, you know, can you separate artists from art, which is an eternal question, I suppose, especially in this day and age. It brings up questions of how much can you trust what people write about themselves, how much can you trust that they're revealing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I had much more of a conclusion in except that it definitely, both both this article and then also reading a, a significant chunk of David Foster Wallace's writing that I did not like, which was a new experience, uh, has complicated my, my thoughts on this whole affair. So anyway, uh, to you, Stephen. Uh, yep, as the resident uh, David Foster Wallace fanboy, uh, yeah, I read the article and it was it was, it was definitely a rough one. I this one um, discussed uh, one particular um, relationship he had, but it, like this wasn't the only one. Unfortunately, there was a there was another one he had with um, artist. I know her last name is Green. Just a second. No, that was his wife, uh, Karen Green, Mary Carr. He was he was in a relationship with her, and it was uh, easily creepy. Probably like it, I would classify what he did was abusive um and it is something that i myself have kind of uh been very not kind of i have been very saddened over like somebody who i admire so much whose thoughts i really respect um actually is kind of a dick and uh, has treated women very poorly and there is something like and i kind of want to come up with all these like little 
little euphemisms or little like, well, he was no saint, but honestly, that like that that doesn't encapsulate it. No, he was awful to those women, and there's there's just no way to to get around it. I, I am curious. You said you've read uh, two of his anthologies. Uh, Consider the Lobster is one of them, I think. What's the what's the other one? Uh, the other one was both flesh and not, um, which I who again I was talking about this with someone else just the other day who. 100% agreed with me that Consider the Lobster was good and Both Flesh and Not was not good. I don't think that was you, Stephen, but... Uh, I haven't read that one. Yeah, Consider the Lobster, it, it, it came out after his death, um, posthumously, and it's the main two things that it tends to go into is sort of his opinions on various, like, sort of internecine, uh, but contemporary for his time, fights among young fiction writers. And then uh, his opinions about tennis and how Federer is just like, you know, a god who walks among us. And I was just neither interested nor compelled by his writing, which, like I said, in Consider the Lobster, every single essay, even when I was like, I don't care about this topic, was like, damn, that's good. But this one did not command any such attention. So that really does make me think that that was the best of collection and there are far inferior ones that followed. For what it's worth, uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is also an excellent collection of essays. Um, but I mean, Consider the Lobster, I think, is hands down my favorite of his collection of essays. It is it is so beautifully done. Um, but I don't... I I have ha- extolled David Foster Wallace's virtues for many moons, and I will, for the record, I will consider uh, continue to do so, um, because I think that he has a lot to offer at the table as far as his... Um, his work is concerned that said yeah there is kind of this frustrating notion when you find out that your hero is actually kind of a kind of a jerk kind of like not someone you want to be like um maybe there are aspects that you want to be like but there's like on the whole i definitely don't want to be like that guy um which i think i would just fall back to to souls and ease and saying the the line between good and evil runs through every human heart and if only it was just as simple as you know being able to identify you know that person's bad that person's good and therefore we can just kind of, you know, choose the good, stay away from the bad people. But unfortunately it's more complicated than that. And David Foster Wallace for all the good that he did for all the, the excellent thoughts that he had for all the, the brilliant literature he wrote. Um, yeah. He treated those women terribly. And uh, that's just kind of an objectively bad thing that sadly besmirches his or not besmirches. I think besmirch means that it's unjustified. Uh, that sad, sadly um, leaves a really bad black mark on his record that, uh, that keeps people from being able to kind of fully praise him, which I think I also use as kind of personal encouragement on like, man, man, I hope that, you know, the legacy I leave, the, the, um, the legacy I leave that will wash away uh, in the sands of time as it were. But I would rather be known for being a decent person than for having a bunch of awesome work, but also being a jerk. So I don't know. I think that's also, there's a personal uh, appeal to that as well. Yeah, I mean, this article brings up that question of how do moral transgressions influence the ideas of a person? And, 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 and more importantly, does his moral transgressions in certain places invalidate his work, which is dealing with ideas in different areas? Can someone be morally corrupt in, in their treatment of women, which is awful? I mean, and, and reading this article, I mean, it's, it's, it is really awful of what he did. Does that mean that we can't take his work and gain value from it? And I see this debate play out very regularly in, in the political sphere, where you look especially at American history, and you look at what 
certain found, founders did, which was awful. And, and the originally worded U.S. Constitution in regards to slavery, which was awful. And how you see arguments being made today, that means that all of their ideas about government, about human nature, have to be dismissed based off of that one moral, one extremely serious moral transgression. And I don't actually know how to rectify this situation. Um, because I guess I, I want, I, I don't know how much of the individual is corrupted based off of that one error. And that kind of seems to be what this article is getting at is, it, it, is maybe, I guess, it, it, do you, you guys think it's saying that maybe more of him is corrupted and more of him cannot be trusted because of this transgression? I mean, the uh, the writer of this article that puts it at the end, so it's obviously meant to be the big oof moment. Um, so, you know, t- take that as you will and take it with a grain of salt. But the the final paragraph or two of the article talks about uh, DFW talking with, you know, the who he had an affair with and, you know, is subsequently portrayed as not having the most, uh, let's say, egalitarian relationship with as talking to her about the Nietzschean idea of infinite return or something like that, where, you know, the same things repeat themselves in history infinitely. And so his conclusion was, you shouldn't be, in more colorful language, you shouldn't be mean to people because of that. And the rejoinder from the writer, you know, critiquing a dead man um, is, if you need Nietzsche to tell your, to tell yourself to not be a jerk, you know, maybe you're different from the rest of us or maybe you're doing it or something like that. Which is definitely a nice kind of uh, finisher. I, I would like to clarify for our listeners uh, who may have not read this article. Um, Wallace was extremely creepy and manipulative psychologically and, and emotionally like ab- abusive. It thankfully never escalated to, to physical violence towards either of the women, at least not in the research I've done. So I would like to at least add that as a, very tiny grain of salt. Obviously, those aren't justifiable in any way, but there is, I would say, a large difference between being an emotional, you know, prick and uh, uh, a creepy jerk, and like being physically abusive. Right. Uh, so, uh, for our rants this evening, I suppose I can go first. Um, uh, my rant for today is uh, about. Microsoft, uh, my, as we all know, um, our dear, dear friend, Stephen, uh, happens to work for that esteemed company. So Microsoft's been up to some interesting things these days, uh, all, all things considered. I was like, for example, they have extended a trial of Microsoft Teams, their, you know, uh, team collaboration software for the workplace and now working from home to, I think, every company for 30 days or something. Pretty, pretty snazzy. In addition, they've... No, there's no in addition. Um, but anyway, so they've extended this this service to all these companies, which has seen a jump of something on the order of 44 million people, I believe, in the past like week and a half, uh, which is pretty crazy. Now, here's the thing. I use Microsoft Teams for my own work for billing. And there are some interesting features that I just absolutely love and don't make me feel at all like I'm in, you know, I either a goldfish bowl or the panopticon. And those features are, for example, an extremely robust closed captioning system that can capture the speech of everyone speaking 
uh, of a large meeting of several people at once, uh, very, very accurate. It's, it, it's quite Im- impressive, all things considered. However, this speaking system is also combined with an amazing ability to record said meetings, again, with infinite numbers of people in, in those meetings. Uh, but when you hit the record button, this funny thing happens where it doesn't start recording at the moment where the record button is hit, but rather at the beginning of said meeting, which means that the entire thing was being retroactively and also <laughs> closed captioned retroactively. In other words, the all meetings are recorded and transcribed pretty accurately, and they exist somewhere on some server that we know nothing about and we receive no notifications about either. So this makes me feel very excellent about Microsoft, especially because the Bill Gates Foundation ran a simulation like two years ago where they looked at the uh, impact of a pandemic that looks suspiciously similar to the COVID-19 in terms of symptoms and spread and speed and, and uh, impact to the economy and all that uh, with, you know, rather dire and, and such. And of course, I would not be surprised to see Microsoft's stock prices jump dramatically as many, many workplaces uh, across the globe, 40 million people's worth, discover that, you know, we can actually just do this all over Teams. We don't need to go into an, an office at all and just, you know, dump more money into this cloud collaboration software. So I'm not drawing any conclusions from this. I'm not saying that this is a, a you know, hellscape and the first play of Microsoft in the upcoming corporation wars with Amazon, uh, you know, which of course is hiring 100,000 new soldiers, I mean, uh, workers to help pack packages in the next coming days. But, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the possibility has been floated. And, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've heard that some people say that that's what this is. So uh, that's that's my opinion. You know I what? would just like to say that of all the corporations to take over the world, Microsoft probably would be the better. So just consider who you want your corporate overlords to be. You know, Lord Bezos. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's really interesting because if you think about it, I mean, well, obviously, like if you if if Microsoft gain anything from Teams. There was a critical period when they needed the virus to expand. And that was roughly two weeks ago when the message, it's not a big deal, don't freak out, go about your daily lives, would have been incredibly lucrative for somebody who, for for, for Microsoft in general, particularly those who were on a specific team dealing with a feature that is quite useful in Microsoft Teams that I actually enjoy, namely the calendar feature. That's all. I'm not going to grace that with the response. Do you know how much our stocks have fallen? <laughs> gosh, you're all the worst. Oh my gosh, I make one false statement. Okay. Uh, just, I just wanted to. Which is saying a lot. Kid. Given the fact that he followed, what was it? He followed the, the kid home from school. God. Uh, anyway, sorry, Steve. This has been a rough know. episode for me. This has been a really rough episode. It's a problem with Steven uh, episode. <laughs> Uh, oh, that is that is excellent. Uh, but, that okay. better be the name of the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The problem with Stephen is episode. Uh, Sam, your Sam, my your rant. rant. My rant's far shorter, but also applies to to the coronavirus and is probably less controversial um, than a conspiracy theory saying that Microsoft and Bill Gates specifically started it. It's simply saying that I'm just maybe a little bit fed up with. Um, how the corona I'm not fed up with, but fed up with America in that the coronavirus has unveiled how subtly but 
robustly selfish we are in our culture, it's quite painful. I mean, you look at how people respond to the crisis and to the prospect of being trapped indoors for a few weeks, and their response is to buy up essential supplies such as toilet paper and masks. And at the point when you have hospitals saying, please stop purchasing supplies because you are actually taking them from medical professionals, and the response to that is stealing masks from medical professionals in hospitals, which is the thing that is happening. Oh, it, 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 it makes me lose a large amount of what little hope I have for our culture. I wish that we could find the line between completely freaking out and panicking and purchasing all supplies off the shelves so that nobody can get them and going about our daily lives and traveling to Florida for spring break along with other crowds of people only to spread the illness further. I guess there's this there there's this weird juxtaposition that I'm noticing in this in in our culture right now where people are both panicking and doing nothing at all and both of those things are going to hurt those of us who are most vulnerable before my rant i will i i will try to uh, encourage you a little bit uh, with two anecdotes i've heard um first that seattle um organized a pretty much a crowdfunded create mass for medical personnel where they pretty much sent kits to a bunch of people i think a hundred thousand kits maybe even more um I heard the movement was for 100 million. Oh, yes, you're correct. I, I, I just looked it up. Yeah, it's 100 million, not 100,000. And they're already out, like, or they're already um, like kind of overwhelmed with people requesting like, hey, I can help out. I can help out. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of foldings. There's folding software um, that, in essence, crowdfunds um, simulations to help develop a va- virus, or <laughs> not develop a virus, thankfully, develop a vaccine. And they ran out of work to do because people were so quick to to hop on it and uh, and such. So, yes, people are being awful, but there is hope. Guess my rant's up next. And speaking of hope, a new hope. Speaking of a new hope, Star Wars. I know I ranted about Star Wars uh, some amount of time ago uh, uh, with uh, Fallen Order. But Fallen Order led me down the uh, rabbit hole of um, external but still canon uh, Star Wars um, content in which I watched uh, the Clone Wars and Rebels, and let me tell you again, like I, I was just surprised by how delighted I was by these uh, these shows, by these stories told. Um, for being especially both Clone Wars and uh, Rebels, clearly aimed at least at first towards uh, a younger audience, they were really able to develop these very mature, robust characters uh, with complicated, interesting plot lines. That honestly, you just you fall in love with the world building. You fall in love with the, uh, the the characters themselves, and just on the whole, as as disappointed as I have been with some of the the Star Wars content that's come out um, in the past, man, like I would like to end the uh, the ranting on a positive note. In that, man, like well done Disney for for coming out with this. Uh, you've got like there's just been some uh, some very lovely stories told, and I am I'm so thrilled with that. That was the safest possible rant you could have made. Yes! I have to be safe now! <laughs> yeah, unlike all the people who listened to you last week. Uh, uh, it's too late for them. Um, yep. It's a shame. So now I'm, I'm known as the advocate for a really creepy philosopher and uh, the, the spreader of contagion. Great, great. This has, been, uh, this has been a great podcast, everyone. It's been a good run. Yeah, Stephen's two for two. Maybe next week he'll be better. Um, Hope so. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, so on that note, and I think an hour and a half into our recording, something like that. So who knows? Um, an hour eight. and 40. Oh, hour and 40? Really, Lordy. New all right. Record. Well, I think we're all slightly to blame for this, uh, but we'll we'll break this out as... I, Revan, I thought you were supposed to give a structure to this. Weren't you supposed to give us order? I, I, I did give a structure and an order, but I also had several long-winded rants that... Um, shout out to Zach at the... Uh, Brandy old fashioned, so what am I supposed to do? Um, <laughs> all the brandy old fashioned. Yeah, it's brandy old fashioned. That's that's the real cause of things. That Microsoft and virus, all three is just you know beautiful combination. But speaking of beautiful combinations, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. and I'm Dan, and we're together again, one happy family. Da 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 da, blood moon. just call it a beautiful combination i did i'm revving you said on this podcast i think, I think so we're great together after the hours of torment i i just went through that that feels good to hear <laughs> it was just what it was fine. It feels it was like actually full hours <laughs> oh yeah man steven uh, you you really did not get a lot of uh oh no that was a rough time here. no that, no, was, yeah, so. that was terrible oh man yeah no i uh I think I'm maybe maybe I'll finally get, uh, reach my goal of like getting actual hate mail. Oh, <laughs> uh, you wish. Um, yeah, I'm not that cool. <laughs>